Sometimes what you're reading in the press and what's happening on the ground don't align. February 2023 is a great example. Buyers agents across my network are reporting long queues at open houses. Mortgage brokers such as Chris are reporting that new buyers are submitting loan applications in large numbers. Sales agents are reporting that buyers seem to have decided that now is the bottom of the market and the time to strike. But then CoreLogic released their January data and headlines reported more price falls across the country. And today... The RBA are expected to increase interest rates again. In fact, we'll have a live reveal in the middle of this interview. So what's the deal? What information can we rely upon? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. We've invited Eliza Rowan, one of our favourite guests. She's the Head of Residential Research Australia at CoreLogic, and she's come along today to help us tease out what data matters and what signposts she sees for the year ahead. Eliza is particularly great at helping us and you make sense of changing market conditions. And we've gone from huge boom to bust in record time. Is this solely due to interest rates? We suspect not. And we're looking forward to Eliza's insights into what the contributing factors have been and what 2023 might hold for us. Thank you so much for coming, Eliza. It's so good to see you. Thanks for having me back. Great to be here. You're on form, Roderick. You smashed that intro first time. Huh? No good stumbles. Effort. No stumbles. It was amazing. Eliza, always good to chat. Um, I mean, I think that it's such an interesting way to start the interview around what's happening now versus what we're seeing in the news. And I think someone like yourself, you get both ends of it. You, can, you get the past transactions and a lot of data core logic. Um, it's probably the, I mean, it's yourselves really and probably REA and Domain who have the best. Um. And then, but you also see a lot of the, the stuff that's coming in terms of new listings and, you know, valuation reports and things like that. So, you know, what do you think the danger is, is people, you know, looking at what's happened in the past and then trying to then think, well, that must be what's happening today on the street. And then maybe they're like, well, there's no point buying now. Prices are still falling. Like, what's your sort of take on the dangers in looking at the past? That's a great question and and I think something that we've been having discussions on recently is the importance of focusing on high frequency metrics. So for us, a lot of that has been looking at the rolling 28-day change in the daily home value index. I mean, really since August, the rate of decline across the national dwelling market has been easing. So your peak rate of decline or your cyclical low was back in August, a 1.6% fall. We're sitting at about a 1% fall in home values over January. And below that, the composition is changing. So price falls continue to ease pretty consistently across Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane, um, which have probably driven the, the bulk of decline in the value of Australia's property market because they are relatively expensive markets. Now we're starting to see some of those resilient markets like Perth and Adelaide sort of easing into more of a decline now, a little bit more of acceleration. Um, We've had queries from 
customers, uh, you know, looking at things like the change in median sale price and, and, and that data tends to be lagged because we're trying to account for um, all of the sales taking time to come through. So really the imputed metrics like the home value index, as well as your high frequency metrics like yeah. auctions, uh, for example, can be yeah. a really nice high frequency read on what's going on. And some of those actually point to, yeah, a potentially brighter picture over the past few months when it comes to value. The past couple of weeks, we've seen the capital city's clearance rate at about 62%. And that's much higher than where we left off last year, where the clearance rate was around 55%, um, noting that, you know, volumes are going to start ramping up. So that larger volume will be more of a test of market conditions as well. Do you think volumes are going to sort of ramp up? Like, I think, do you, you know, when you look at high frequency metrics, do you consider like, um, you know, now those uh, automated valuation model sort of things that the agents will print out when they go out to an open home? I don't know if they're all doing that still, if they have given up on that sometimes. Um, but you know what I mean? Do, do you see that as another way of like new listings that are coming? And do you look at that a lot? Oh, absolutely. So we track them on a weekly basis, but we probably go by a, a four-week rolling count most often. So when I say volumes are ramping up, they have to seasonally. Yeah. Um, people are, you know, back in the market again. So we've started sure. to see auction volumes climbing week on week. They are lower than where they were at the start of 2022. Um, I'm just trying to think, you know, even looking at new listings uh, nationally, we've seen about 29,000 added over the past four weeks nationally for, for sale. That's probably about 24% below where we would usually see uh, new listings this time of year. So comparing to a previous five-year average. Um, and that's one of the really interesting components of, of this downturn is that so far, people have been empowered not to sell as values have, have fallen which we think is something that's put a bit of a flaw under price falls as well. Uh. Core logic kind of contributes to some of the more dazzling numbers it, that you see in the media when it comes to, you know, record peak to trough declines of around 9% nationally. But this is off the back of a very large upswing in prices. And it's another one of those metrics that's just been completely rocked by COVID and, and the extremities that we've seen in the underlying cash rate. The one thing that seems really obvious to me across a number of different um, sort of schools of thought and, and, and industries is that we sort of need to throw out a few rule books following COVID because things that we previously expected to happen when certain things happened don't seem to happen. Um, one example in my own sort of backyard is that when there's a, a downturn in the market, usually you could shoot a cannon through an open house. You know, nobody's interested in property. And yet last year, I, and even in the depths of, of, of it, which is just before August, because we could see things start to, to lift in the very end of July. So it's interesting that nationally uh, August was the month because we certainly yeah. saw that in Sydney. But in the depths of the worst part of the market last year, there were still fairly good numbers of inspection people inspecting open houses, um, and even turning up to auctions that that you know weren't street theatre in the way that they certainly were in 2021. You know, people still turning up. So there's this curiosity and interest in property, even though they weren't necessarily buying property. That's something I've never seen in over 20 years of property. 
Um, so just one small example of, of human behavior, how it's changed a bit. And, you know, there's some, uh, some economists, some sort of rogue economists uh, are, are coming out, I guess, and talking about the way that we even measure the economy and the way, the way that we use GDP and, and, and the, the basically the way in which we judge whether or not we've got a, a, a functioning e- economy needs to change. And so then you've got the RBA, obviously we've got in- inflation, and then that's resulting in interest rate rises, which really and truly only impact negatively a small portion of yeah, our society. Um, and then in fact, they inf- impact positively on retirees and self-funded retirees as well. So so do we have to throw the rule book at us? I guess it's a very long-winded question here, but are you seeing that the sort of the metrics that have been commonly thought of as being you know, rock steady, these are the property metrics that we all make judgments and forecasts based on. Are we having to redefine these models or recreate the models that we use to work out what the hell's going on? I mean, I I am still looking to a lot of the same metrics, but I am noticing a shift in relationships like, like you talked about. And I think one of the most there's a few things that were, were kind of unexpected through the pandemic when everyone was thinking the property market was going to crash. And then we saw this real institutional reaction, not just in monetary policy, but in the banks themselves offering mortgage repayment holidays. So I think that's a really interesting recent lesson yeah, as we move sure. forward into the so-called fixed rate cliff and and how risky that looked. And in terms, yeah, so that I think that's, one important thing to keep in mind is that you never know what that institutional reaction is is going to be, but we probably shouldn't underestimate the power of government, the banking sector, yeah. to, I guess, protect intervene. housing. Yeah, intervene. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah, what what you were saying about the, the number of people through open homes, I mean, that's so interesting because I think even if you look at ABS lending data, which between... April, just before rate hikes, and December, the monthly amount of lending coming out has has declined about 25%. We've gone from this record high of about $33 billion lent in the month of of Feb 22 to, um, you know, somewhere um, closer around, you know, 24 billion or whatever. But the number of secured mortgages has not declined as much as the value. So it's almost like you still have relatively tight supply. You still have people that want to buy homes, but it's as though it's just the interest rate shift that's limited the borrowing capacity and yeah. and the amount that can be physically spent on these properties. Um, and that doesn't to- mean that people then turn around and buy a property and pay twenty five percent less for the same property they might have been able to get a year earlier. You know, and yeah, that, that's yeah. a very simplistic way. A lot of people sort of seem to think that there's this direct straight line between interest rate rises and price falls as if that's going to happen. It's like, no, that just flies in the face of actually reality and and people don't have to sell. They're not going to do that. They're not going to suddenly take a 25% bath. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Oh, 100%. So the, the key is serviceability. And w- as we talked about, there's probably some institutional intervention that, you know, could take place if we got into any real sort of trouble as it is, labour markets are extremely tight and the peak of unemployment was only forecast to be about 4.5%, which is still a percentage below the previous decade average for Australia's unemployment level. Wages are rising um, and household savings 
within, you know, the, the GDP data has shown an erosion since mm. we've moved beyond lockdowns and there's been that post-lockdown spending boom. Um, but I think there's a few other kind of stop gaps in place that are there for people to keep up with their serviceability. Um, I'm not going to lie. I have seen and heard a few anecdotes of people who are considering things like renting out a room, moving yeah. back in with their parents so they can rent their recent property purchase out yeah. to keep up with rate rises. But it is probably those recent buyers, first yeah. home buyers who are a little more overextended and and really at the margins, I guess, who who are going to face issues with serviceability. Eliza, and what you, you go, sorry. Oh, sorry. What you just said there is, is, is very telling because instead of selling, they're looking at what else they can do yeah. to keep the property. And and so you know all these people sort of talk about oh the mortgage cliff you know we're going to get basically half the half the country's property is going to suddenly hit the market. It's like really, yeah. let's let's be real about what people do do uh, when they're faced with with the option of having to sell out of the home that they've tried so hard to get. Let's face it, it's doesn't it's not quick to buy a property uh, to get into the property ladder. And and you know what are they going to do to to keep that property? And there are a lot more options these days. You know, with the gig economy, there's heaps more options for them. Well, yeah, I mean, it, absolutely. You can see that in arrears rate around the banks. You can see that it's very, very low. It's like if there was all of a sudden there's going to be this big, a lot of properties coming on the market, you'd see the arrears rate really jumping up. Like I think it's under 1%, you know, from memory. Like it's really low. Um, then you've got like, you know, people maybe, yeah, the mortgages are going out. That's assuming that they can't refinance. They can't extend their loan terms again. They can't release equity. They... Um, you know, it's as a buffer. Like there's, there are lots of options that people, um, it's not, they might have money in the interest rates go, but they might have money already in a, in a, in an offset account to help them, you know, if that extra payment's got a thousand dollars a month and they've got 50 grand there, well, they're not worried for another four years, are they? So I think you're right. I think people, the borrowing capacity thing is an interesting one. Like one in four borrowers were going to their limit. Um, in some suburbs, it was, you know, that's probably high, but some suburbs are probably maybe 50% of the market was stretching. So if you think about the, the upgrader market for families in capital cities last year, you know, you had two people stretching, you know, and maybe out of four buyers, maybe one was a bit more cashed up, a bit more conservative. But so they're the markets that really came back, you know, 15, 20% fast because, you know, half their buyers had a huge cuts to their borrowing capacity and there was much less competition. But, you know, that doesn't mean that every buyer was stretching. Um, you know, a lot of buyers, they can borrow 1.5 million. doesn't mean they're going to go and spend 1.5 million. They're going to go and spend a million. And so we've got lots of clients who are still purchasing at the same price as they were last year. Yeah, their mortgage is going to be more expensive under higher rates, but they haven't had to reduce their purchase price. So they're getting a lot more for their money. Um, Eliza, RBA is going to um, talk in 10 minutes about interest rates. I'm going to put you on on a, a before and after here. Um, <laughs> what's your sort of take though on, because a lot's happened with the inflation journey. You can see with market pricing that the expectation of the RBA rate is in as high as it's not going to go as high as it was last year, right? That's quite well publicized. But, you know, the inflation story around the world is also, what's your take on what the RBA think about what's happening in the world and and the fears around wage inflation? Do they think that the genie's back in the bottle or do you think that they ultimately think that the game, you know, the game hasn't been won yet and it's still going to take, a, you know, a fair bit of luck to, to, to sort of get it back in it? My understanding is that there's a, particularly aggressive action on inflation this time around because in the 80s and 90s when we had um, 
spiraling inflation. Yeah. Um, this led to, um, you know, a, a tightening in monetary policy, which led to double digit rates of unemployment. So the idea is very much to contain inflation rapidly. And after today, it'll be the biggest successive rate hike we have since the RBA started targeting. So my view, <laughs> I guess, and, and I think this has somewhat been echoed by the RBA, is that we probably are moving past the worst of inflation. The headline results coming out at 7.8% for 2022, which was you know, a fraction under their 8% peak forecast. Um, and we're seeing it so much through the housing perspective as well. We're seeing higher interest rates dampening the number of a- approvals that can come through the construction pipeline. Yep. We're seeing some of the biggest cost pressures around steel and timber consistently seeing lower and lower price increases. Even rental values, we've seen a, a, a slowdown in the pace of quarterly growth in rents through December, and that was reflected in CPI figures as well. Um, the other notable thing about the inflation picture at the moment is that over the December quarter, some of that inflation pivoted from non-discretionary spending like food, fuel and rents to more discretionary spending like travel. So in a way, that's kind of good as well because it means households have a little bit more control over reining back their spending, whereas they Mm. don't have as much control over (laughs) what they spend on groceries or or fuel. Interesting. Yeah, we we had around the travel. (laughs) I think that a lot of consensus was like everyone's burnt out in COVID, uh, didn't travel, you know, finally got the ability to travel in 2022. And it was like, well, we're going to go and do this holiday, right? We're going to go and have this. But we know next year we're going to have to make cutbacks, you know. And I think that's, and, and I think um, even like things like uh, food inflation, I mean, Woolies came out, I think it was last week and was saying like, oh, we think that the worst of the food inflation, you know, the transport costs and, you know, all the challenges with food, it, it start to come down. Is it sort of, is there any other sort of elements of the inflation problem where you think there could be concerns or, you know, that it's going to keep it stubbornly high and, you know, ultimately that's going to keep, Ask, you know, forcing, you know, employees to ask for wage increases because that's ultimately what they're trying to do here is to right. stop that happening en masse and then we get this spiraling effect. Yeah, I think the upside risks for inflation are around China's move away from zero COVID and the return of um, travel to Australia and, and you know, that, that only makes prices go one way um, from that additional demand. And the other thing that you know, we don't have so much control over, at least in the short term, is extreme weather events, um, yeah, yeah. bushfire season and and further flooding events and, and things like that, which can really create ongoing um, capacity constraints to the production of, of food as well. So that's something that the RBA highlighted towards the end of last year, is that whether we like it or not, we're kind of in a new era for inflationary spikes. Um, and that is partly because of extreme weather events. It's partly because of the transition to renewables um, and and partly because we've seen increased global conflict as well. So I guess there are definitely some risks to inflation that Australia doesn't have a whole lot of control over. So it goes back to rewriting the book though, doesn't it? And also back to this thing about, you know, like Australians controlling our discretionary spending because you can't if if you know if your loaf of bread costs more and you still need a loaf of bread you're going to still buy the loaf of bread right um but then you don't have to buy the new television or the new lounge or go on the holiday 
Um, and yet we seem to be doing that. I know the retail figures were sort of a little. That is the problem. They December. get reported as, yeah. as, as positive if they're up. It's also negative if they're up. So it's hard to sort of follow. It's a strange time, isn't it? It is it's a strange like when time. Is, when is a contraction in GDP like good news? A good thing. And, yeah. <laughs> or a, yeah. One, one thing that I noticed, oh, I was listening to some interviews um, that you gave recently and you were talking about the more expensive property markets and how they had actually suffered more of a decline than the more affordable end of the market. And that's sort of interesting too, because you would you would think, yes, of course, if somebody's borrowing, you know, more than five million dollars for a house, for argument's sake, obviously the interest bill is going to go up ridiculously, you know, uh, compared to somebody who's borrowing maybe more than five hundred thousand dollars for a house. So proportionally, you know, you would expect, yes, that's going to be a market that is they've got to earn a hell of a lot more money to to cover of those um, additional interest payments. But at the same time, they're not as vulnerable necessarily because they're not like first home buyers where they're just getting to the market the first time. They're they're struggling to with, you know, dealing with negative equity, et cetera, et cetera. So how can you explain, I guess, what has transpired and why that may have happened? I guess the first piece would be that it's just a reliable cyclical pattern. So we've always kind yeah. of seen the top twenty five percent of Australian home values, capital city home values, Sydney home values, whatever the market you're looking at, it, it just has more volatility. Oh. Um, and we've seen that recently, even with that more positive trend of, of smaller rates of decline. The top 25% of capital city house values had this 6.4% um, loss in the September quarter. That's now contracted to a 4% loss in the three months to Jan. I've even seen at the suburb level areas like Gordon, um, East Kalara stabilizing in 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 the past three months, and those are three million dollar house markets. Uh, you know? so, yeah, so that's I mean, it just is. Um, in terms of why, I don't think there's one definite explanation. Uh, we do know that wealthier households um, tend to take on higher debt to income ratios, so it could be increased sensitivity to fluctuations yeah. in in interest rates. It could come down to things like the way that very wealthy home buyers are compensated and, and that, you know, if interest rates are rising and company performance is falling, then maybe that's less compensation that, that you can look forward to if, if more of your pay is tied to, um, you know, performance structure and, and things like that. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't know that there is a clear explanation. It's just one of those trends that, that we've always kind of observed. I remember early on, as probably within our first 50 episodes, we interviewed Frank Gelber, who used to, oh, he's well and truly retired now, but he was, you know, very well known as a property economist, um, you know, in the day. And I remember him insisting there were 12-year cycles for starters, which I thought was rather funny, um, which we definitely don't have 12-year cycles now. Uh but he did say, and I do remember that sticking in my mind about that upper end of the market being the most volatile. It can have, you know, three time growth and then it can fall by 50% and then back up. And so it is a rather interesting. So so that's one thing that we don't have to throw out the rule book for them. We can actually say, well, that that's that's performing as as expected. We still don't really know why, but it's it's is more volatile, <laughs> always has been and and thus far always will be. You also mentioned that resilient markets such as Perth and Adelaide 
And I'm curious, what is your take on why they've been resilient? And, and what do you mean by resilience? Because I know yeah. Perth, Perth has had a shocker decade really before uh, the COVID boom. That is a really good point. I guess in the um, context of maybe over a decade or so, Perth has not been such a resilient market. But I uh, I guess we we talk about that in the context of Australia's largest um, rate hiking cycle. Mm. Um, the, the shock that we've seen that um, put to the Sydney market, which is down about 14% peak to trough, um, across the Perth market, values have fallen less than 1% from a recent peak. In Adelaide, values have fallen around 2% from a recent peak. And and that's also what we talk about when we note the variation across markets. So I would put that to a relatively long period of subdued property market performance. But I guess in terms of migration data, we're also seeing more positive trends for Western Australia and South Australia more generally, um, a bit of a kickoff in virtuous cycles around employment growth as well, increased aggregate demand, which then attracts more people to, to the state. Um, and it could also be the pursuit of home ownership and the relatively affordable price points where your median dwelling value across Perth is about $560,000. Um, six hundred and fifty thousand for Adelaide, um, compared to say nine hundred and ninety nine thousand for median city <laughs> dwellings. Yeah, and Do on that too. It, sorry, you go. Well, you talk about the affordability for for people buying a home to live in, but there's also this push for affordability with a lot of in, in a lot of investor circles that so they they rightly yeah. or wrongly, and in fact, I don't think you should be chasing affordability when it comes to investment because it's not really a metric that actually pays dividends necessarily, but but. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, a lot of attention and interest in, amongst investors in buying in, in Perth and Adelaide, probably precisely for that reason, the affordability reason. Are you able to pull out that data and work out who is buying there and whether or not investors are helping mm. to to prop up those cities? I mean, I think that is probably a part of it. Um, and certainly we've seen a general trend of higher gross rent yields across some of those more affordable capital yeah. cities as well. Um, for as much as the property prices have, have had a large boom, um, throughout the past few years, Perth has seen some of the biggest annual increases in, in rents as well. So that, that could definitely be a part of it. Um, I just did a little refresh of the RBA web page. If yep. you guys want to oh, 25 basis points. Is that what it is? 25. So we're there up to 3.35. <laughs> Little live react for live everyone. Live reaction. Are we surprised? Anyone yeah. surprised? Uh, no. <laughs> look, I think it doesn't really matter where it stops. It's going to stop at some point, right? Yeah. Um, it's not going to stop at 6%, whether it stops at 3.35 or 3.6 or 3.85. It's the, the heavy lifting to both perception and people are already thinking that, right? So it's not till we go past what people are thinking. Um, and so... At the moment, if it's if it didn't if they didn't increase, you'd be surprised for the positive, right? So at the moment, everyone just said, "Well, that's what we're expecting anyway." So uh, that's not going to change the market. So, um, well, that's a bit of a fizzer for our little reveal yeah. in the middle of the podcast. <laughs> I, I'd, I would make a good um, Sky News presenter, talking it up for six hours and getting lots of guests on. 
Uh, Eliza I think that, would have been really diff, really terrible, I have to say, on, on you know on the on the property show that I used to be a co-host of because we used to have to wait to actually reveal anything, and I didn't yeah. get the chance to do a drum roll. Yeah, but it was a, it, not that exciting. Anyway, so let's kick on with the interview. Yeah, <laughs> the interesting about the price declines. It's um, now one person in particular is getting a lot of attention. Um, we'd love to have him on the podcast around the price declines, and he's. In fairness, he's picked it all the way up and the down, and I won't say his name because it just feels like it. But I, at least there's a know who you're we'll talking be talking about. about yeah, right? and he ignores us. <laughs> he won't come on. And, so. he, and, oh. and, he's, and I've <laughs> asked him a hundred times on LinkedIn, and he just won't do it. Um, but it's it's I don't know why not. Like you know, hey, it's it's it's, it's it'd be a good chat. But he even just like he even shut me down because he said, "Look, you know what's a, a fall's a fall, right? Like you know, I don't need to add context to this. Like these are a falls, right?" Um, but, you know, in, in stock markets and things like that, yeah, maybe it's, it's you know, you might want to talk about this because people are sort of trading in and out and people got the ability to come in and out. Property markets definitely work a lot different to that. And, um, you know, falls are really a lot of paper money, right? Like it's paper wealth, right? You're not, what your property price is worth is really only a tangible thing that matters if you're really going to use that equity to do something or you're selling or, and so it, it, what's happening at a, at a number level doesn't really matter. And, and it, and it does, a lot of context needs to be brought that, you know, what happened last year in 2021 and, and in those, in those markets you spoke about, they're the fastest growing markets. I mean, Perth mm. res, might be resilient, but they didn't grow anywhere near as much as Brisbane and, and Sydney and Melbourne. And, um, I think that's the key thing here is, is expanding it out to a multiple year thing. Um, and, um, yeah, and I think that that's often lost in this, this, cause everyone's looking mm. at these last 12 months figures and saying, okay, prices are down, prices are down. Okay. Well, over three years where are they what's <laughs> happening in the last month the price is slowing down and those are the things that matter more broadly than annualized figures in the property market if, you, if that yeah, makes sense. especially when it comes to an asset that's held for a relatively long time well, it should be yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, someone a uh, carlos cacho who we've interviewed on the podcast he just in, he just emailed us this morning to say because we've been storing up examples of properties that had sold and then unsold in the last short period of time, and he and he gave us an example of a property in Bronte that sold four point seven five million in October twenty two, and then just sold in February twenty twenty three for drum roll four point seven five million. So despite the fact that official figures are saying that city city dwelling prices and city housing prices are falling, that particular property sold for exactly the same price. Um, so it bucks the trend and that's only one example, of course, but or I'm adding it. could that... have moved up and down in that period oh, as well. Wow. What was could the... have. <laughs> Just a yeah. thought. What was the time period again? Between... Oh, only five months. And so, yeah. Oh. And you're only like, it's very, it's a very short time frame, but yeah. it also shows that the seller would have known, the buyer would have known that it's sold for four, seven, five, yeah. right? Yeah. So they've got the mentality, I'm not going to pay more, but, mm. um, but to, to be willing to pay the same is different. Like, because yes. they're also like, they're willing to say, well, I'm willing to match it. I think the market hasn't fallen massively down since then. And, um, but it, one transaction is really hard. You never really know the circumstances. You'd know this, Veronica, right? Yeah. When you look at a sale at a price, you don't know whether that was a desperate vendor. If it was really hot at auction, eight people went hammer and tong on it. Um, you know, if it was a, connected to the family, you know, a better deal. Like there's just so much things you don't know with sales and purchases, unless you're almost like a part of it or you're at the auction, you just don't know those things. And so it's hard to read too much into individual sales. I feel like you got to have a lot to, to know. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent true. But it's just funny because, you know, Liza says, you know, property is a long-term long hold asset. 
Oh, it right. should be. It should be a long on asset, you know. Yeah. And despite the fact they got their money back in terms of nominal price, they certainly didn't get their money back in terms of the costs associated with it. But unfortunately, people don't always behave like it's a long-term asset because they, they're knee-jerking all over the shop and panicking when they read these headlines about price falls. And and so it flies in the face, even though, yes, yes, property is and should be a long-term asset, we we often, our human frailties, lend, lend us to be very knee-jerky and very panicky around a lot of this data that we see, you know, being reflected in headlines. So I find that. I find that fascinating. But also one of the things that I find fascinating is that there is a difference in lag time. And you mentioned it earlier, Eliza, about the hedonic, um, your sort of daily price and the median. And so the median relies on what has sold and settled, I'm guessing, um, in terms of what you what call logic use. And the hedonic is obviously your measure for like a, a daily price index. Um What's the difference between the two? Can you can you sort of tease that out for us so we get a better understanding of this? I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first-home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower north shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly get the finance right. Please reach out via our website wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Yeah, so it especially when you're looking at something as simple as a median sale price, you're looking at a period where a bunch of properties sold. Um, say if you're looking year on year at the change in the median sale price, um, if you look at a 12-month period um, you take the middle sale and then 12 months later, you, you do the same. All you're really comparing is two sales. Um, yes. <laughs> so that, you know, if, if, if something is happening in that market, like we're seeing a recovery at the high end, for example, and higher value properties start transacting as opposed to lower value properties. Yep. That's why some data providers would use a stratified median sale mm. price, for example, yep. where they break up the market into different stratas. Look at the change in the median sale price within those and then average the the sort of difference um, there. The hedonic home value index is an imputed measure, which means it's an estimate of property values. And instead of just comparing two transactions over time, we're trying to compute a valuation for as many properties in the market as we can, whether they're selling or not. And in valuing all of that housing stock, we're accounting for compositional bias. You know, we're, we're accounting for the fact that different types and value segments of property could be selling at any one time. We're using recent sales and listings information to feed into that valuation algorithm, but we're also using the individual attributes of the property. And we use um, machine learning to test our models and make sure that we're using the best variables in terms of property price predictors, which tend to be things like number of bedrooms, bathrooms, yeah, 
And then in valuing every day, putting a value to the entire market and then tracking that over time, like you would have a stock market index. That's essentially what we've tried to replicate with the housing market. And I think the fact that CoreLogic produces a daily index tells you how obsessed we are with property in this country. But that's, you know, it's a very sophisticated measure. It's got a lot of brilliant minds behind it, but it can be really hard to communicate to the general public. So we still get, you know, comments every now and again on our reports, like median prices suck, you know, (laughs) and it's like, well, that's okay. We're not using median prices, but it can be hard to to communicate that. Um, But yeah, it's definitely our preferred measure. (laughs) I'm glad. Thank you for explaining that because... It is something that we're very aware of here yeah. and, and it's something that, you know, through our many interviews with Kent Lardner as well, uh, if you know Kent, he, he's been a great teacher, uh, certainly to me and I'm sure, Chris, you probably agree. We've learned so much about property data from our interviews with Kent. We learn a lot from you as well, obviously, um, and it, it is important and I find myself sometimes for a want of a better word, I use the word medium price when I actually mean your hedonic index as well. So, um, but it, I think it is important that people do understand there is a difference and also that the the, the weaknesses or the, the flaws with use, relying on medians, because of course that compositional bias is, is really obvious. And, you know, it's one of those things I rant about uh, top 10 lists because there are certain suburbs that seem to always be in the top 10 list for the, the obviously either the, the biggest increases or the biggest falls. And that's because they're usually quite small. So they don't have a statistical significant number of transactions and then there's quite a long a lot of diversity in terms of the type of property that would would sell and they might have workers cottages at one end and waterfronts at the other and if there's any skew in either direction that can really stuff things up so um thank you for sharing that i do appreciate it so with that lag time though with when the medians do get produced and released because then they are talked to as well is it then that we say oh yes what we saw in the hedonic has played out? Has there ever been a difference between the two? They track, they they correlate pretty well. And oh. in fact, one of the ways we test the um, accuracy of the index, or not, not the accuracy, but I guess one of the ways that we validate the index when we're reporting on small regions as well, is just to make sure that things like the median valuation over time, the median sale price is pretty much in line with that. So there can be a bit of a difference at times, depending on what kind of stock is selling at the market. But generally, they're they're all pretty well correlated. The, The benefit of using the home value index is that it's the most timely because it's estimates. Yep. Um, so whereas the the median sales price, for example, we want to make sure we've got as many observations as possible. So to collect all that sales data, it's taking a, a few weeks to sort of ingest that all in. Um, we do get a lot of recent sales information that's collected very quickly across the business. But of course, if you want as many observations as possible, you've got to lag that data a bit. So the old- is that on a suburb level with the hydronic community? So you're just doing it at a national level? We produce it down to the suburb level. Yeah. We will only report it where we think we have enough valuations and the index itself is not too volatile. So we have minimum s- reporting standards for the suburb level. Yeah. But that's only the month-end index. The daily index is only produced at a very high level, yeah. national, combined yeah. capital cities, things like that. Yeah. But in time, it'd be good to be able to 
almost I'm sure cause you're working on it is is a suburb monthly everyone can get access to every suburb is that sort of not there well, yet though are you <laughs> we do have a free online resource called the mapping the market report so if you google call logic mapping the right, market okay. that's where we have mapped the three month and 12 month change in the home value index at a suburb level yeah we've we, we used to do it quarterly we've just started updating it every month yeah okay. um and that's where if you go and look at that map of sydney you can see the areas that are starting to bounce back based on the three month growth rate really yeah. interesting unfortunately it's not available as a time series it's just a snapshot of the past of the latest three months of data so 2023 was- is a big year um What's what's Eliza working on? Like, what are your? Oh, bef- sorry. Before you ask that question, because that yeah. will take us in different direction. Just a very quick <laughs> one, because days on market, they're quite a key metric when it comes to you know what's happening and, and what direction a particular um, market might be moving in. Uh, is that sort of built into that mapping model? No. So that is a really good point. We certainly can visualize it. It's just not something that we've set up automatically. We also have the free monthly chart pack, which Mm. is available via our website, and we report on days on market there, but again, at a pretty high level. Um, Suburb level we can do, but again, we'd want a minimum observation of resales. Yeah, got it. Got it. Back to 2023. So, yeah, 2023. What are you you working on? on? I mean, I've always got, you know, we've got our little life plans, our goals. I'm sure as a property person, you sort of thing in data, he'd be like, oh, this year I really want to get stuck into this. Like, yes. what are some of the key things that are not really told out in the marketplace? I'm sure there's some little exciting, if you're allowed to share or want to share, that'd be awesome. So I don't know about you guys, but I feel like beyond lockdowns, 2023 just feels so full of promise. And I wrote a bunch of resolutions and I haven't <laughs> kept them all, but I've signed up to do, you know, a bit of learning and development this year to to extend my expertise in the data space. Um, in terms of topics, we'll be really scrutinizing this fixed rate cliff and how risky it is and what kind of impact it could have on the market over the course of the year. I'm very keenly interested in um, really data-driven insights around policy as well. We're starting to get a lot of I don't know why it's coming back, but the millennial versus Puma debate, the, yeah. um, you know, we've seen the introduction of the first home buyer choice in New South Wales. We're um, getting a broader national political discourse around relying on private partners where the national, um, where the federal government is is a little more fiscally constrained in what they can do in housing. So really better understanding I guess, international examples of how different policies can affect housing markets and things like that. That That's sort of where I'm thinking at the moment, but it's a big year ahead. Anything can happen. So we'll have to get ready to pivot, I'm sure, at some point as well. I think that's a really good idea. I mean, yeah, I mean, the fiscal, the mortgage clip and things like that, that's going to be like the interest only clip a couple of years ago. Like, you know, yeah. bank pricing is ridiculous at the moment. You know, people are getting ahead of it. You know, I don't think it's going to be a storm in the teacup. People, banks are really proactive in this space. I think, yeah, you're definitely going to see people who may be bought in 2021 with big mortgages and if incomes have been cut, they're going to have problems. Um, but we spoke about they'll do everything they can. So I think that'll, that won't be that exciting. But I, I, if it may, I think the exciting thing is what you're talking about, that the housing affordability debate is not going anywhere, right? And plus the the social impact debate. It's why we talk about it a lot. Um, and the interesting thing is other countries around the world are having these same problems. And 
everyone's trying to solve this as a as a debate. And there's a lot of wealth in the world in in retirement funds, um, in global, you know, government funds, the, you know, the future fund of yeah. Australia, etc. So I think that's that interlinked between housing and global wealth um, and what's working around the world. I think that'd be super interesting to keep you know, dragging insights to Australia because, you know, that's what build to rent is. That build to rent is a new thing in Australia, but it's been going on for decades overseas, you know, social housing, um, you know, and et cetera. So um, is there any countries in particular that sort of you gravitate towards? We've, we've spoken about Singapore on here where they give houses or, or properties to um, at low prices to first-time buyers. Um, yeah. You know, is there any other countries that you think are doing things well around the world that we need to take some insights from? So Germany comes to mind okay. as a really established institutional investment um, in that rental space and, and the kind of build to rent that you're talking about. Um, but certainly I think Singapore is a great example in terms of shared equity and, and yeah. those kinds of government support schemes. Um, I think the important thing to keep in mind for build to rent is that it's not necessarily been... I mean, I, I I was sort of talking about this the other day um, where you only have to look at something like superannuation to see that when we take big corporate action in aspects of Australian life that are so important, whether it's our pensions and, and future incomes and housing, you get a lot of variation in, in service, right? <laughs> so built to rent is not going to be some miracle answer for amazing service for tenants or affordable housing or even secure tenancy like uh, and I and I think we need to be while I think it's good to have some new forms of housing introduced I mean we've got to be so skeptical and and critical and and hold that to a really high standard as well and not just give tax breaks to corporations so that they can you know build something that doesn't create secure and and sustainable yeah, housing yeah yeah it, it's yeah because it'd be like a bit of a convenient buck passing um for the government who have all of our governments really have dropped the ball a bit when it comes to providing affordable housing and so it's like oh yay a whole new sector yeah yeah we can give them some tax breaks let them go for it there's i think it was lend lease was it that came okay. out today announcing that their their recommendation is 30 percent of all new developments should have an affordable component uh that's a very interesting announcement from a, a public listed company mm. and uh and obviously a, a, a big player in that development space so is it going to be is it going to go in the way that um you know corporations have gone in the climate debate you know that really it's it, government's not leading this it's going to be uh organizations and, and they're potentially driven by their shareholders that are saying right we we need to step up and do something here um yeah it's it's quite an interesting space i'm i'm i'll be fascinating to see i guess what comes of that and what you can make of that as tight as the well it's just not just this year but this is really seems to be when these things are starting to take shape and we have our transition sorry sorry to interrupt but no, the, the transition to more institutional renting as well and what mm. that does for our future in terms of you know because in a way if your super fund is in the build to rent space then Technically, you are raising wealth through housing, yes. but if it also crowds out opportunity for inner occupation and it does become much more normalized to rent in Australia than own, then it's like, how do we ensure that wealth at retirement? How do we 
uh, overcome the fact that if you're renting as a retiree, you're much more likely to have housing stress and and be in poverty. And you know, how how do you address those things as well? But would that be the same if we had better, um, you know, av- availability of housing? You know, in the future when those people become retirees, I guess you look at. We said New York is meant to be the poster child for for affordable housing. I'm not sure how successful that is in in that context. Um, but I think that, you know, once again, that takes a rewriting of the rule book. You know, Australians have to reevaluate our attitudes towards home ownership yes. and also, yeah. you know, the wealth effect of yeah. that. Um, but yeah, I think we are on the cusp of change on so many on so many levels. So it is very exciting times, you know. And hopefully, you've got some personal resolutions that you, or personal exciting things that you're looking forward to as well, not just all these lovely data data projects. <laughs> <laughs> so first home buyer choice. What's your thoughts on that? Like, so you mentioned there, you know, things that this year when you do a bit of a brain dump, you were coming all these things you were thinking about this year, you know. The, the, the Sydney, and no, this isn't just about Sydney, this podcast, but New South Wales is a big state, right? This is a big policy. Um, and, you know, the election is, you know, six weeks away or something, right? Um, Labor at dollar ten to win the election. So, yeah. you know, it's highly likely they're going to win. The the, the bookies have got Brexit wrong, Trump wrong, um, multiple other things wrong in recent years in politics. So you can't lie on it. But, you know, and they've said they're going to cancel the policy, basically unwind it, you know? Uh, how do you have it to a a million dollars like what's your thoughts on what be, is being proposed and what you know labor is saying and do you think it's likely that you know if labor do win they're going to cancel it then they're going to do their policy or do you think there's going to be backlash or what's your thoughts on that space have you, has anyone some consulted you around all that or um, yeah. well i i guess labor's um proposal was just to increase yeah. the exemptions and concessionary discounts I, I mean from a fiscal position i think it's not I don't think it's sensible. I think it's going to cost state governments more money, more money that they could be putting into social and affordable housing <laughs> rather than helping first home buyers get into the market who are probably going to be in a pretty good position to get in anyway. It'll just take them longer, right? So I think we really need to triage uh, government spending around housing at the moment because nationally, in the year to June 2021, there were 114,000 people who sought specialist homelessness services that were turned away. Wow. Like, we are in a crisis that yeah. is stemmed from uh, um, a lot of stress in the rental market. And I'm sure you've had lots of, of discussions about some of the factors that have driven there. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think it's, I don't think it's very sensible. And then on the other side, you uh. have this, what I get the impression was, more of a, a broad stamp duty reform that Perite was trying to introduce that maybe has been watered down, scaled back quite a bit yeah. to a point where theoretically it, it wouldn't be very effective um, because the benefit of abolishing stamp duty and replacing it with a broad-based land tax is not that the first home buyer gets an easier entrance into their first home. That's part of it. But the main efficiencies are delivered through incentivizing people with more land than they need and more space than they need to downsize. So that's not a first home buyer. That's an empty nester. And yet this first home buyer choice is only targeting first home buyers. I know. Um, and not only that, but it's subsequent sales of the property. So it, yeah, today's first yeah. home buyer might decide to opt exactly. for land tax. And then if they sell that property and the next person is not a first home buyer, then it goes back in the stamp duty yeah, system. Exactly. So they're not even yeah. making any headway on 
on their stated objective. Yeah, and and that has implications potentially um, for the initial purchase. Like, is is the first home buyer overextending themselves to take advantage of, of yeah. that property tax option? Mm. Whereas, ideally, if you took away those um, large upfront taxes on every property purchase throughout the course of your life, maybe the first home buyer starts with a smaller, more affordable property, Uh um, knowing that they can upsize without. I mean, I say all this, these are the mainstream economic arguments for abolishing stamp duty, implementing the broad-based land tax. And I think when you look at it from a data perspective and the fact that the ACT has been um, phasing out stamp duty uh. since 2012, and yet it's the second least affordable housing market uh. by medium value. So not necessarily something that brings house prices down, but yeah. potentially something that increases the efficiency of housing stock that we have. And it um, was uh. the argument there is meant to increase supply, right? So if, if uh. it takes away that impediment to transact. So if, if you have more supply, supposedly you're going to have a downward pressure on prices, but that obviously hasn't happened either. Well, and you need so if you it's one thing to say everyone in Castle Hill needs to downsize to a townhouse or apartment or something, but then there needs Will to they? be that higher density yeah. stock. Which there, yeah. there is, obviously. That's that's maybe, been established. Maybe there. <laughs> I don't know why I pulled out that example. But <laughs> Yeah. Um but yeah, mm-hmm. you need the stock to downsize into as well. And what you find is that a lot of old, older Australians don't want to move away from their community to to yeah. do that. Um, might not even want to downsize. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I think it getting rid of the stamp duty on a more broad basis, replacing it, you you must replace <laughs> yes to, to get the revenue with with the broad based land tax. Um, seems like it would be a step in the right direction. Yeah, I think the, the whole idea when I first started like really getting into property years ago, like I was sort of like, oh, well, surely all these people are going to sell from the downsides of the baby boomers, and you know, and it's going to create this. As the wave comes, it's going to create all this stock and people aren't going to be able to afford to buy those houses and things like that. But, you know, it just doesn't work like that, right? It's, it's you know, people living longer than they expect. You know, if one party, even if um, both my nana passed away late last year, right? So she was 90, but my pa died eight years ago or seven years ago. So she lived in the house by herself, you know, for seven years, right? So, you know, technically she should have downsized, you know, but there's so much emotional attachment. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's not exciting to go to aged care um, or to, so, and, you know, and a lot of the government support you with living in the home for longer. So, you know, like if there was an amazing option for there as well, like this is a great care option for you. You're going to be much happier and safer. And um, then that would free up a lot of housing, you know, to pass down generations. But even that doesn't exist. That's a good point. Like there's a lot of vulnerability in our aged care system. Um, and some horrible reports of, of treatment of older Australians. So I guess when you're looking at the housing market transition from a more holistic perspective, like that's a pillar that you really need to address as well. Yes, there is. It's interesting that, you know, the theory of what might happen when you when they put in place these policy changes and what really does happen um, isn't necessarily aligned, but also you know, what you're sort of talking about there is it's great in theory, once again, to free up these houses that have been lived in for many, many years of people that can then downsize with lovely, lovely um, options going into aged care. If if all of our different arms of government actually spoke to each other and, and we've got the same problem, which is probably the, the topic for a whole other interview around the increase in population um, in terms of, you know, immigration 
And where are those people going to live when we've got yeah. our, our worst rental crisis ever? Is it our worst one ever or am I being hyperbolic? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's all this stuff going on. So I think 2023 is going to be a very interesting year. I think I um, – we definitely want to get you back, Eliza. Um, and we do love talking to you. And then every time we do meet with you, uh, we think, oh, my God, it's been too long. So we'll have to make sure that we we invite you back a lot quicker this time around. When's the next Fuller Forecaster report out? Uh, so, no, that's us. We do that. That's the you. Pain and, pain and gain. <laughs> the pain and gain one. Yep. So we're looking at March for a release on the December data. So it's a bit lagged. Again, we're mm. looking at resale observations that have actually happened, but I'm sure we can expect a bit of an erosion in the rate of profit-making sales. <laughs> <laughs> that actually would be a good one to look at because, you know, 2022 is a year of decline um, and it makes sense for people to cut and run when interest rates are going up, right? Um and so underperforming properties, right? They bought an apartment for four fifty. It's still worth four hundred. Um, interest rates are going to go from three percent or two and a half percent to six percent. I'm going to lose even more money on this place. Um, I'm just going to take my money and run. And uh, my interest rate, my home loan's going up. There was that whole consensus that you know a lot of people would sell their investment properties versus their homes, um, which makes sense, right? Like if that's well, going to rents you, are going up, rents are going up, but you know interest rates have got up three times, you know, so. Um, yeah, I think it's 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 going to be interesting to see how many investors actually, because a lot of that would be in investors' markets where you're losing a lot, not so much owner-occupiers. Yeah. You can see that their percentages are much higher mm. than the investor market. So let's have a chat in a few months regarding that. And um, you haven't got a recent property done, but you can share with us, Eliza, something that you heard recently, just a nice little story to finish oh, us I off. I have. Yes. Oh, there we go. Mine. <laughs> Yours. Do you tell? It's my very own. Wow. Go on. Get it all it. started. <laughs> um, so my partner and I have exchanged Whoa. on a property, which is very exciting. Congratulations. First Thank you so much. Um, you need a broker? <laughs> oh, I said, did you need a buyer's agent? Well. <laughs> oh, I, I think, I, and, I, and I think this is where a lot of the hubris and, and Dumbo comes into it is I thought I had the, the research and the know-how. <laughs> we're always learning. And um, one thing that I did not understand, which I feel like is is quite a basic um, uh, rule which or law, which I should have understood, is that a new owner uh, cannot break a fixed lease for, for tenants in New South Wales. So while I thought I was buying an owner-occupied home... Um, we there are there are tenants in there for a while, so we've we've sort of worked it out for for uh, I I think um, that that it's worked out the best for each of the parties involved, um, but just know that just because you've bought a property, it doesn't necessarily mean you can just move in at settlement if there is a fixed lease. Did anyone tell you about it? Well, it would have been in the contract. Yes. 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 The, well, the agent was um, transparent about the fact that there were tenants in there and that yep. the lease would end after we <laughs> exchanged. Did the, I just didn't uh, did realize the what that so, so, yes, You didn't so, so, join the dots. The conveyor didn't say part of their, you know, conditions is that there's a lease. I'm not sure how much detail I should go into. <laughs> But to to protect everyone involved, but um, I didn't think about this before I yeah, it's interesting <laughs> brought up my personal property Dumbo, but um, <laughs> no, but, but it's interesting. One. It's it's interesting though, like because it's you know from a selling point of view, you'd really want to get the tenant out, right? Um, obviously they sold it with a tenant, so was yeah, was it quite neat and tidy when you were looking at it? And beautiful, 
beautifully. Yeah, they, so they've treated they it very the well. Place, yeah. So they don't want yeah. to leave it as well. So you probably can't give them a moving bonus and say, hey, yeah. here's three grand, you know, if you want to leave in six weeks. Um, yeah, they've probably got their stake in the ground, like they've made it their home and um, they don't want to leave. So that's probably one of the other challenges. I, know. I yeah. feel pretty conflicted about it, to be honest, because it, it is such a tough rental market out there. Ugh. And this is one of those scenarios where, like, you know, it it's probably going to be tough for them. And we've given them plenty of notice and we could even recommend the rental that we're coming from, I guess, as, as yeah. we transition to home ownership. But yeah, definitely. Nice if the agent, um, you know, that who sold it uh, should have a property management division and try to Link two things up, but the sales has already been done. The commission's done, so let's go on to the next one. Um, but no, I'm being a bit, uh, yeah. Just, bit just one thing I will add, and maybe you have already gone down this path, but um, have a chat to an accountant because obviously there's capital gains implications uh, when right. you buy a property yeah. with a lease in place, with a tenant in place. But there is a period of time. There's a grace period um, uh-huh. if you can't settle and you can't move in because of a lease. So I don't, I'm not an accountant, so I can't advise you on that. But what I would suggest you do is go and have a chat to an accountant to make sure that you don't inadvertently in the future, when you go to upgrade, um, find that you've got this tax bill that you didn't know you had. So, well, that's great advice. And that's, you know, I'm learning every day. (laughs) Yeah. I think it is really good advice actually, because I think the, um, you know, I think you should be right if it's the current lease, but what you could do is sign another lease for two months. Um, because you think, oh, it's in December or it's November, just live them a couple more months because it suits me. Yeah, you and could shoot yourself in the foot. you could potentially now no longer be eligible for no. the six-year rule um, because you were trying to do the right thing. Um, so you moved into it two months later, but it was actually technically a new lease, and then maybe that could rule you out. So I think that's wise thoughts, Veronica, to, to really <laughs> just be careful with that. Um, well, that's why on Home Bar Academy, Megan and I were like, we're old enough to be your mum. That, uh, <laughs> that's how we give our first home bar advice, just like your mum. <laughs> I'm not, hopefully I'm not old enough to be your mum, Eliza. I doubt something. that very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, another but, great chat. <laughs> yeah. And, and it was just interesting when I relayed my situation. I was surprised by how many people said, oh, I didn't know that either. So oh. there you go. Well, we could do a whole episode on your first home by a guy about exactly no. that. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your food for thought. Thank well, you so much. Congratulations either way on, on Thanks, purchasing. Guys. Thank so, you. Um, yeah, and we'll chat again in a few months. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.